Hey, what's going on everyone? I want to welcome you to the newest episode of Wake Island. I want to start the show off by saying thank you to Joe Martinez of the band Junius for giving our intro some much needed metal vibes. I fucking love what you did with it. Today on the show we have on author and darling B.R. Yeager. Talking to this dude made me realize that it's like an unspoken rule that the more fucked up an artist's vision is, the sweeter they are in person. That said, I think it takes a very perceptive and present person to write about detachment in such a way that it not only retains its bite, but does so with a sense of pathos. His debut novel, Amygdalatropolis, is about an incel dissolving into an online world of depravity. If you're into dark, experimental lit, this is your jam, I promise. And if you want to read something that can push the isolation of quarantine into even darker spaces where location and body dissolve in a nightmare fuel, you're going to love his newest novel called Negative Space, which I would say is like if the uh, children of the corn were connected by message boards in the afterlife. Having this apocalyptic book come out in the midst of a pandemic seems like unintentional foresight or brilliant marketing. It's hard to tell which. This is definitely one of the headiest conversations I've had on Wake Island. We get into the electric charge of having grown up in the 80s, which was a time when the concept of dimensions and portals permeated children's culture and cartoons and movies such as He-Man and the Gate. There was also this hysteria around aliens, the satanic panic, poltergeists, and exorcisms, which were all portrayed as reality in the media. There was this sense of fantasy bleeding over into reality at all times, almost as though we were preparing ourselves to move into a new online dimension. I hope you're keeping your quarantines weird and healthy. And if you're a smoker, make sure to light up to this one. Here it is, my conversation with B.R. Eager. You know, I started thinking about it a lot in the sense that um, I kind of feel like for the first time in my life, the anxiety that I feel on like a day-to-day basis is mirrored on the outside. And for some right. reason, that has chilled me the fuck out <laughs> in this really weird way. Do you have anything like that going on? 100%. It's <laughs> It's been very much that I feel like I have to kind of like fight that a little bit because I've been so... During times like these, you always think like, oh, I'll be, I would be so creative and like work on so much stuff during this time. And, you know, to tell the truth, I like, I've been laying a lot like fall by the wayside, which is fine. But um, ah, it's interesting. Like, I think just like you're saying of like figuring out ways of like breaking some of these routines and breaking things up a little. Yeah, yeah, it's just wild. I don't know what else to call it. It's just wild. I run into that same thing too, where I'm like, man, I should be more creative. I should be like starting some sort of project. I just kind of feel like this is a really great time to gather materials, you know, like mm-hmm. just take notes, be aware, watch all the movies that you wanted to watch, but you never got around to like trip out as much as you can really kind of take in as much of this atmosphere as possible because it's really so unprecedented. It's something that, you know, I think when this thing is over, there's going to be, if not a reset, there's going to be like a before and after Christ kind of moment where mm-hmm. when we reference the past, we'll be like, oh, was that before the plague or was it after the plague? And there'll be like a totally mm. different 
context for those two uh, moments in time? Uh, I was talking with my friend and uh, last night actually, and he he was exactly like referring to it as like being like you're in the event. It's hard to see the event because you're in the event. And I think that that's, I think that's something that's like basic and like what's running through everyone's head, but it's, uh, it is one of those jarring things where, you know, you have some aspects of normality again, in my situation, like I'm in a very fortunate situation again, healthy and, you know, being able to still like work during this time. So I'm able to experience some of the, you know, strange mundanity that's happening. Like while, things are kind of going crazy out there. Totally. And it also kind of feels like, I don't know if you feel this way too, but to me, it feels like for the last, you know, four years, I'd say, you know, for the entirety of the Trump's presidency, and I won't say this is like totally just related to him. This is more related to American culture in general, that we've been waiting for some sort of impact, like this entire time. And I think we all thought like, at least me, I thought it was just going to be like a war with Iran where we watched it on TV and we kind of were like, oh, it's fucking terrible what we're doing. But it would feel very remote, distant, and it would just be another fucking pointless American conflict. Absolutely. Well, yeah. as in we have this and there's almost a sense of resolution, at least for mm-hmm. me, where I'm like, OK, we have something, you know, we've finally landed somewhere where like this, this anxiety and this like pulling back of pressure has finally been released this kind of collective fear is like in the background of everything and it's kind of hard not to just put it into some sort of um context if you're you know living your days out with any kind of normalcy right and and i think what it is is also seeing like the masks like really falling off in terms of what the systems are that are in place and what the response is and how it's responding. The another fortunate thing is, you know, like just being fortunate about like my circumstances right now is, you know, there, you aren't seeing like lots of heavy presence of like, you know, patrolling people who are quote unquote breaking quarantine or something like that. But yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's kind of funny that you said that, um, well, you know, the, the mask is finally coming off because, you know, aesthetically, it's the mask that is the one symbol that I think everybody can relate to at this moment. You know, like, I fucking have to wear one when I wear walk my dogs. And it's very, oh, like, it's so, the, the symbolism is so heavy-handed. It's almost... Yeah. God is such a recognize. hat to me. Like, yeah, right? it sure is. <laughs> it's, 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 like, it's Jesus. You would you would laugh that off the screen or off the page. If you totally, yeah, all of this. Across that. It's, it, it's so funny. Uh, there was this, uh, I won't like blow it up, I won't name it, but um, there was just this, one of the worst books that I read um, <laughs> was this all about. I know that there's a few books about this so you can't pinpoint it okay one of the worst books i ever read was a book about a uh it was a an insomnia apocalypse uh where it was just that everyone was there was an epidemic of people weren't able to sleep so people started going like wild and crazy and it was so like so poorly written it was so heavy-handed with everything that was laying out and this it has been feeling much more like this than any other piece of apocalyptic media i've encountered (laughs) so it's sad that that's the most prescient uh 
piece of media out there right now. Well, I think this is a great segue into your book because what I think your book does and what I kind of wanted to spend a lot of this podcast talking about is tone and atmosphere. And I think a lot of times when books like the one that you're referencing try to, you know, express something big and apocalyptic and as all consuming as this, they kind of miss the mark because there's so much concentration on on having plot points and it following this really strict narrative. And one thing I think mm. negative space does is that it you know, there is a narrative there and there is a narrative to make the Latropolis as well, but what you do so well is create this really immersive experience where it's more like a video game or a piece of sound or a film. So I'm curious, like when you were writing that, was that something that you were aware of? Thank you so much. I, I love that. I, I love the, uh, you saying that it, was, it felt almost more like a video game because that's something that I like think about a lot and talking about tone and atmosphere. I think that that's the thing that that medium of video games does probably better than almost anything it doesn't necessarily live up to its potential as a medium all the time or mm -hmm. very rarely but the uh the ability and like to traverse you know crafted space and you know there's the idea of there being you know even the narrative there is secondary in that it's inhabiting this strange and new space I think that's like my one of my favorite things in the world, like across all mediums. I love books that can do that. I love Great. films that can do that. That's exactly what I look for. So I, I guess doing that just comes out of my privileging atmosphere and tone over anything else. And then just to put it into context, why don't you tell the audience what Negative Space is about? Um, essentially about four kids, four teenagers who are living in the midst of a, uh, a strange suicide epidemic in a small New Hampshire town and who begin using a uh, synthetic hallucinogen called Whorl to try to cope with it. Basically, the plot follows three of these characters, and one of them is almost like an omniscient narrator in the sense that one character is friends with him, one character is dating him, the other one kind of knows him through them, and... His name's Tyler. Can you like describe like what's Tyler's role in this project? Tyler is the character that you never get to know specifically. Um, it, he's the focus of the narrative, but he's the single perspective out of, of these uh, four teenagers that you don't ever get. So essentially it's uh, as we're spending time, they're going off and doing their thing. It's, a lot of the book is just hanging out initially and uh strange things start <laughs> i don't know I, I i can't like I, I that's that's the thing with it like i i feel like every time i've tried to like describe it or write it out or like try to put a bow on it it sounds like just the most cliched shit <laughs> no I, I, you know i know yeah. i know what you mean and you know just to backtrack a little bit i have to say like your last two books to me are more horror genre than most horror genre books are in the sense that your books actually gave me the chills. And I mean that as a total compliment. And I feel like anytime that I read horror books, they never do that for me because they're so reliant on 
creating relatable characters and going through this narrative that seems to kind of drain a lot of the atmosphere and tone out of the project, which yours almost, that's the single thing that it totally runs on. Like, have you seen that Thanks movie? So Man- yeah, dude, my pleasure. Like you really deserve it. But have you seen that movie Mandy? Oh, absolutely. That's, I, I won't go as far to say that it's like, one of the best movies, but that might be my favorite movie because it seemed that helped me through the final push of uh, writing Negative Space because, I, again, just like the vibe and atmosphere and tone. And it was just kind of like, OK, you can you can fucking do it. You can just drive it on just that. So, you know, the reason I bring it up is, you know, the first time I saw Mandy, I actually I saw it on Mushrooms and oh, you know, I'm so happy that I did that. I went to the theater. I didn't really know anything about what it was about. Um, and my mind was just totally blown by it. I was so like kind of beside myself, not because I was on mushrooms, but just because it's such a beautiful work of art. And the thing that it brought to mind mostly for me was that it reminded me of when I was a little kid and I would go to the video store and I would look at the horror VHS covers and the fantasy VHS covers. And I would think of VHS tapes as this object you know what i mean like it was like like holding a book in your hand and a lot of times the cover art was so much more engaging and beautiful and like spooky than the actual movies were because a lot of b movies had these great covers but the movies themselves were kind of you know the visual effects and atmosphere didn't live up to you know what was on the cover and negative space also felt like what those movie covers felt like and what I wish the movies themselves actually played out like. And I'm curious, like, does that, you know, ring true to you when you were going about writing it? Not to say that you wanted to impersonate Mandy or 80s movie covers, but it feels very heavily influenced by this kind of electric charge of the 80s aesthetic. That's interesting they bring that up. And it's something that you see you know, time and time again of, I, I think, people from uh, our generation talking about those experiences in the video stores and imagining what those are more than necessarily what the movies were mm-hmm. themselves. That was a huge part of my growing up and forming aesthetic and desire around creative aims. But I, I would say uh, not so specifically like tied to any particular era, but I think what you were saying about the movies and the books that fail to deliver or become the thing that you see a lot is that the further along you progress in the story, it becomes more and more lackluster because you're finding out more information about what's going on. And it becomes, it ends up squashing the vibe and like the feel the entirety of writing negative space was probably me just trying to fight against any of those impulses to do any of the things that would, make me roll my eyes (laughs) and and what about like the head spaces of the 80s because that's something that i really think about or i thought about when i was reading negative space in the sense that it really reminded me of a lot of things and none of these things are overtly in the text so i don't want to make anybody any of the listeners feel like this is like an 80s horror movie book or anything like that but for some reason it really tapped into a lot of memories i had as a kid of like missing children on milk cartons and the satanic panic and the way exorcisms and all of these things kind of permeated pop culture and the news and they were presented to us in this way that was like this is real guys like 
Satan is out to fucking get you. Like, pay attention. That wasn't necessarily a con. It's funny to say that it wasn't necessarily like a conscious thing that I was thinking about, but mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's also all over what that is. It's, I mean, it's about children going out into the woods and performing <laughs> abominable rites to change the fabric of reality. Um, the thing that I always kind of find fascinating, especially uh, looking back from being in a period of a actual uh, disaster, again, like looking back at like, uh, mid nineties of uh Marilyn Manson of like the last thing that legitimately gave people a what felt like legitimate fear that didn't actually mean anything uh was actually quite innocuous but like could have that effect. It, it's interesting. You you don't really have that anymore. No, you will never have something like that tactile again that seems to all have been like subverted by the uh internet. Beyond sort of the I guess the whole like mythology and that was spread by detractors at that time of you having the, the daytime talk shows just talking about like, you know, the, a form of art poisoning children. And it's just so interesting, like having grown up with all of that and really just have, kind of, I feel like at this point, anything kind of goes um, and people just don't really bat an eye. Absolutely. But I think you also have this unique perspective in the sense that you grew up on both sides of that, you know, before and after divide in the sense that like you had this 80s, you know, childhood that, you know, I'm assuming you got into the internet when you were a teenager. So you're able to kind of see as far into the past as you are into the future, which I think is like super unique to our generation specifically. Even speaking with people who are maybe like a few years like older changes the story of uh, what their experiences were, first experiences were with the internet, just because, you know, it might be coming to it in uh, adulthood for the very first time, as opposed to early teens. Um, So you get different uh, perspectives and different sides and different aspects of what was there and what it was like. And yeah, no, that's something that's been really very, very interesting to watch over time, just seeing how cultures and subcultures on the internet um, evolve and you know, change and fork, fork different paths. Totally. And like, I want to stay on this train of thought, but I also do want to backtrack in the sense that um, another thing that I thought of while reading both of your books made me kind of also realize that Growing up as a little kid in the 80s, you had this awareness through kid culture of dimensions and portals, which Mm. seems to be like a big part of your books. And I think that understanding of what a dimension is and what stepping through a portal is, because, you know, you had movies like The Gate, you had He-Man, you had this cartoon called Visionaries, and they all had to deal with, or they all dealt with um, magic and crossing into different dimensions and dealing with the rules of each of these dimensions, which I think your work does too. And I think having that perspective as a kid and then having the internet, it really goes hand in hand. And it almost made me feel like as a a species or something, we were kind of ready to cross over into some sort of dimension and that we were kind of, you know, manifesting it into our pop culture and our movies and cartoons and the, way that kids were kind of understanding entertainment at that time. 
That's so fucking interesting. I, 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 I had never kind of, again, I'd never really have consciously thought about that, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think you're onto something because yeah, I, I remember the media that I was kind of first exposed to, like you were saying is, was always like really even thinking about like rainbow bright it's it's all concerned with uh traversing different planes of reality um you know i mean going back as far as like wizard of oz which i'm i saw both wizard of oz and return to oz when i was a kid i'm not sure if you had seen that it's horrifying uh but it's terrific but what you're saying about uh kind of there being a generational manifestation of these portals of you know there was this desire for escape this desire to um escape the current plane of reality was so strong and powerful maybe fed into by these different forms of media and that we manifested it we the there is we created a different plane of existence and it's where people are shaping and like reshaping, um, you know, persona and identity and it can have like magical and transcendental quality. Right. But it was almost as though we were aware that we were about to cross over to another epoch or another dimension. You know what I mean? Like, right. It almost seemed like there was, I don't know if this is too out there of a thought, but I remember when I was no longer a child, like, you know, when the time I was like 12 or 13, I'm, uh, I think three years older than you and unsolved mysteries became like kind of the thing that I would watch that like supplanted, um, cartoons, you know, I was no longer watching yeah. cartoons and that show and then shows like it that talked about poltergeists and stuff, um, and like I said, presented them as fact, made it seem like there were holes in reality that sometimes the ground like, you know, swallows them up and there's no real reason for like why they disappear. I remember Unsolved Mysteries too. And um, it's interesting, like I had a very atheistic upbringing, but um, I was very susceptible as like a kid and as an early teen to like ideas around, um, you know, aliens and ghosts. And I, I wanted to believe all of, (laughs) all of that, but even if like that meant like have putting aside some aspects of, you know, analyzing the different things critically, um, consciously doing that. Yeah. It was all like a mixture of like feeling very threatening, but also magical as if there were limitless possibilities. Um, Absolutely. That, that like the world extended beyond in a much more significant way beyond what was present in front of our faces. You know, I even remember like you just brought up aliens and I remember, you know, there was that movie fire in the sky and there was the movie yeah. communion with Christopher Walken, which both scared, scared the, the fucking shit hell out of me. Out of me. Oh me my too. God. Dude. Oh, and they oh were both God. like, pre- you preface those movies with this is based on a true story. And it was like the most right. nightmare fuel shit in my fucking life, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was that was for a while. That was one of my like greatest fears was being abducted and yes. have, have have and having vivisection done upon me. Right. Because um, that's what they were saying. They were like saying that they I, wasn't that a scene in communion where like he goes on their ship after being like taken from his like upstate New York home. And like there's all these like children in there. Yeah, something. It's been a while since I've seen that. 
he's a really I, f- I forget the name of because that was based off of a book that yeah. was written that was published as nonfiction. He's uh, I'm forgetting all of the details of the, his story, um, but he's a really interesting guy because I think later on he started changing the story to that that he doesn't think that he was physically abducted, but that he had a but that he still had that experience. It was just not on a physical plane. Well, you know what's even even crazier about that is that say this thing did happen, you know. I mean, I'm I'm also skeptical. Like, I'm not saying like I'm an as oh, an adult, I totally believe this. But it just I, all it's I'm cool to is, think about though. It's fun to think about. <laughs> well, the crazy part for me to think about is that okay, regardless if this happened or it didn't happen, he put this book out, which turned into a movie, which turned into another, you know, several other movies in the '90s. And it was on, you know, it was on Unsolved Mysteries and it was kind of a thing, you know, you had the aliens with the big eyes and like, you know, the, the you know, little chin and the big head and um, yeah, it was frightening, right? But it was everywhere. Very. And then it went away. And then in like around like 04, 05, it's fucking everywhere. It's like part of rave culture. It's part, you know, it's on like stickers. You see alien heads on the back of cars. You know, like it became part of pop culture and it's in this weird way, like incubated over this like eight year stretch or so. And then it just like popped up everywhere. I mean, it was like in that movie Spring Breakers and I don't know, like you go to a bomb shop and there's fucking pictures of aliens. It's on your phone. There's an emoji of an alien head. (laughs) The the raid on Area 51. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It turns into like phenomenons online that like go out into the real world so it makes me kind of think like regardless if this thing happened or it didn't happen to this guy is that he put it out into the world and the scariest part is if this if it turns out that this was a real thing and like the aliens come to earth and they're like what the fuck you know like they go to our fucking coachella concert and they see their face everywhere Oh, that's so funny. I mean, I think that that's one thing that I'm very, very interested in is um, things that were once terrifying becoming mundane. Even like looking at, uh, and a lot has been written about this, but uh, looking at um, the horror icons of like Freddy and Jason, yeah. Leatherface, and how they became um, almost mascots. Yeah, they became um, like teddy bears. Right, right. The interesting, one of the interesting things is the idea of. Uh, you know, taking all of these like legacies, like these urban legends and disrespecting in them in a way that becomes mundane, which I, I mean, I guess that's that's what Candyman is, too, um, about that. To a certain you... extent. But it's funny that Candyman is almost about people doing that. But now it's being remade. So it's becoming right. that. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is the story of every generation, but seeing what was once shocking and frightening become ingrained into the popular culture and losing its teeth over time. But then I think, you know, something like, you know, your book, Negative Space, comes along and kind of, at least for me as a reader, really like awakens a lot of these memories, you know, like the whole time I was reading it, I was thinking about the river's edge. I was thinking about Lost Boys. I was thinking about Children of the Corn and how in the 80s there was this it was just commonplace that there were movies about children that were totally alone that functioned as adults that lived these hyper violent lives and 
magical things happen to them. You know what I mean? And some of these people like Keanu from River's Edge become heartthrobs and, you know, kind of get suffused in like whatever our ideas of desire and masculinity. Like, I feel like your book really, you know, whether <laughs> you intentionally designed it to do that or not really kind of awoke a lot of those feelings for me. Ah, oh, that's, that's, that's terrific. No, that's, that's really cool to hear. It's hard to know whatever, this is probably gonna sound really pretentious, but it's hard to know what's kind of being done intentionally. Um, mm -hmm. Going through the process, again, going back to, you know, you don't, you're unable to see the big picture because you're in the big picture. Right. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to hear uh, the different interpretations. And, you know, I'm saying interpretations as a you know, my favorite thing about any type of uh, like art or medium is, you know, ones that where people have like varying uh, interpretations of it. That's been the probably the most interesting thing, like hearing what people got from it that I didn't necessarily know was there in the text because I was in it and not being able to like look at it. What else have you gotten from other people? I've really appreciate the thing that I've appreciated most because it was the thing that I was probably uh, most worried about was that people have been th saying that the depiction of the uh, characters as teenagers uh, felt very uh, authentic and felt similar to what other people's experiences were uh, because I feel like that can really easily be fumbled. And I, I think that I had things in there that fumbled that hard before, but I, I was glad I was able to get rid of most, if not all of them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think your book does a really good job with that. And I've heard you speak about this before, but I know that Dennis Cooper is a big influence on you, right? Enormous. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about Dennis for a second, because okay. uh, it feels weird to even call him Dennis. I don't think I've ever refer to him by just his first name. <laughs> but um, Dennis does a great job at or at least in my mind, and I think this is very specific to having been a teenager in the 90s, kind of echoing that, you know, disaffected, like, Gen X voice in a way that I think is both, like, it feels authentic, but it also feels theatrical and almost funny at times, you know, especially when you mm. hear him do, like, a, you know, reading his books and it's like, so, like, Todd, did you fuck his ass? And, like cut him you know he, he like reads like uh, that and it's like kind of awesome like it really it makes I've me never laugh seen that i have to check that out that's <laughs> very cool i, oh, I never it's... thought to check that out that's yeah. all, that sounds delightful <laughs> it trust me i mean as a, as a fan fan to fan it's totally delightful there's a bit of a tangent but um he you know he does these uh he's done two plays that i know of that were written by or i guess directed or composed by this artist named giselle Again, could be wrong mm. on her name, but Stephen O'Malley of Sun does the score, and um, okay. yeah. And at first, it's funny because um, it's, it's kind of a dumb story. But I went to the play; it was in New York, and me and my friend, you know, we were like getting super high outside because we're like, "It's Dennis Cooper. It's a play. Like, let's make this last." And um, <laughs> you know, we came in late. And we had to go sit like in the front, but not in a chair. We actually had to sit on the floor. And I was oh, like, wow. and I was like, ugh. and everybody was looking at us like, ugh, these fucking, you know, losers. 
and um but the play you know and i and i felt terrible and um the play doesn't start yet and you know people are kind of getting impatient and uh the doors open and in walks bjork <laughs> oh whoa and everybody yeah exactly that it's that thing that you just did that oh wow Everybody turned around and looked at Bjork and went, oh, wow. And, like, she was later than me. And I was like, oh, fuck all of you. Like, fuck off. That's amazing. <laughs> totally. Oh but God. the play was they crazy. Have, have such power. Yeah, I know. Oh, oh, I imagine. I imagine. So I guess, like, one thing that, uh, like, one of the primary things that, you know, like, that I pull, get from Dennis Cooper's work um, is the the relentless first person narrative that swallows the world essentially, mm, you yes. know, it, it's, 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 you know, it's each of his narrators are creating the world as the book is happening. It's like very much like for that. And that's the thing that's like what I love so much. And that, that was a big thing that I was pulling from in negative space and maybe even like literalizing that a little bit. But I, I think that he's someone who's just so easy to get lost in um, and to kind of inhabit that space and those like miniature worlds that for short little pockets of time, it's, it's that's like, I admire the hell out of it. And there's like a really um, immersive quality to your work that reminds me of sun and mm. I'm curious because I feel like, you know, I follow you on Twitter and I think there's a lot of aesthetic overlap and things that we're interested in. So I don't want to be um, putting things out there that are something that you're interested in. But I'm curious, was that oh. something that you listened to a lot of when you were writing this and something that you wanted to mimic through text? Absolutely. So one of the most important things with like anything that I do is um, having music <laughs> to go along with mm -hmm. while I'm kind of conceptualizing while I'm like writing while I'm you know doing editing it's I, I feel like for the most part like I need to have like the music can help like create that atmospheric foundation of like try to write something that reads the way that this sounds um and so so Sun is someone that I listen to like quite a bit but even more so are, are you familiar with a uh, con eight at all? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're strangely like maybe, uh, one of my like desert Island bands. I can almost like, I can listen to their stuff almost all the That's time. Interesting. Um, just cause it, it like that I feel is the, like the foundation of what I wanted negative space to feel like. Why? Um, like what is one that? Of the, one of those songs. It's, it, it's, it feels it's, you're not losing it's not complete fantasy it's not complete reality it's 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 a very like psychedelic music it's a very you have both like the mundane and familiar mixing with the horror of the world twisting out of joint like you i mean you're hearing that in like the music of like it's lurching around it's like pulling apart it's uh it's never staying steady. It's like you have the drums and the rhythm section there. So it's a little bit more pronounced than uh, what sun does, but it's, it's like the sound of things just like falling apart and going to hell like that. Mm. And it, it, like over an extended period of time. And like, I, I love how they are able to like convey that. And I don't know that that's just like puts me in the uh, headspace for it. 
it's like you're you're pulling different life vibes like what you're surrounding yourself with and you create like rituals of like setting the mood of like getting into a different headspace you you know change your lighting you change you like choose what you listen to what substances you're ingesting to have an altered experience that you know gives you insight into something that might be beyond you like it's um yeah like you know music plays a part of that you know uh, hallucinogens plays a part in that um i was very lucky right before like lockdown happened i was able to like get like a quarter of mushrooms so i've like tripped like three times since like lockdown has nice. been and, like the, uh what so were that, those experiences like uh so the the first time it was very is interesting it like knocked me like right on like on my ass uh i like couldn't do anything it was a very powerful experience but it had it was a very um primordial very the imagery and feelings that i was like experiencing like inside because i had my eyes closed the entire time were it felt like very the way i described my wife was that i felt very snaky it like felt like the world had um, become layers and layers of scales. meat and snake and wow. scales between it was just like a very but it was like very comforting it like was a really comforting feeling and then like as I was coming down we watched uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula <laughs> it was like the most unbelievable it, it was like a, it was it felt like because I was still in the trip I, it felt like the first time I had ever seen a movie ever and it was this um it was just unbelievable it was a phenomenal phenomenal experience That's um, awesome. the other times have been um much more mild but still like very this is like the ultimate like tripping person thing to say but i had like the first that first time i had like just this distinct impression that it's like oh right this is what this intelligent being being this like this uh fungus is like trying to communicate with us by making us the the trip is us thinking like how a mushroom thinks which is like the most complete burnout thing to say and i i feel so embarrassed always even uh saying it but uh it, it, those were the thoughts that were coming it's been it's been interesting it's been um a good way of staying positive uh during this time that's for sure <laughs> that's hilarious but i mean i think that all makes sense to me and it's funny because you know when you take mushrooms you know you do them to kind of mediate your experience of whatever life is and mm -hmm. it kind of makes sense that like you take mushrooms during a pandemic where everybody in the fucking world is wearing gloves and masks and like in hospitals and in fear and you think about scales and snakes and meat kind of like wrapping over you like to me i think that's one of these like small hints from the universe that you know you're totally connected to people and that you kind of understand what's happening at the moment huh that's interesting that's interesting have you ever uh taken and this was a huge influence on uh, negative space uh, have you ever uh smoked salvia before oh it's funny i thought about that earlier today for some reason i've done it once okay that's the case for most people yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> as a guy that really likes psychedelics i did salvia one time i did the rest of them a lot <laughs> yeah no for sure for sure um i i've only done it twice because i was 
inconsolably bored the second time. I was just like, I needed, I think I was out of pot or something. I just needed something to like shake mm. up like <laughs> things. Like again, there's, there's the head shop downtown. I'll go get some salvia, but yeah, no, no utter like experiences. I'm very glad that I had, I'm very happy not to have them again, but Tell me about it, it. Was, it was, uh, you go through that experience and you realize that your brain can think things in a way that you didn't think possible you, that you could uh, experience any types of like state of being being um, that you didn't think was, was possible. So like the first time that I had done it, I had a feeling that I had become inhabited by a, another spirit, another soul, and that that's who I would be from then on again, within the span of like five minutes. But what was that but, soul like? Uh, so this is like so bizarre. So the soul was a anthropomorphic frog who was like a medieval knight who hopped up into my body and was going to drive me off to go on adventures. I, I, I have no idea why. It was very strange. Well, dude, I think we're going to find out what your spirit animal is tonight. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a snake. It's not a frog. It's something in between. But we're gonna get to the top of it. That's interesting. I like that. I love that. But yeah, so let's go back to a conversation that we were having before the trippiness started, and yeah. <laughs> we can still relate it to this. But like, I'm curious. Like, when you were growing up in high school, did you have any transcendent experiences with the internet? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh absolutely, one hundred percent. Um. So like I've always had like like speech impediment things and like right there, um, I, I've I, I've I've always felt like more uh, comfortable like typing things out than necessarily like communicating verbally. Um, so the internet was terrific for me. So like I, I feel like I was you know very much isolated for the most part from uh, a lot of people in high school except for like you know pockets of friends. Um, but you know, youth is still kind of like weird and amorphous and like hostile sometimes, uh, the, the social structures there. So yeah, like, you know, I was like very much of the, um, the AIM generation and like near the tail end of like my high school experience, there was like a uh, live journal and like, I think MySpace, not in MySpace at that time, but a lot of it was like AIM and then, you know, you had before that you had like chat rooms and uh fucking different geocities pages and things like that so it was like pre-formalized uh social media and like what were the first sites you visited before social media like did you have any like i'm i'm, I'm going out on a limb here but i'm assuming rotten.com was part of your uh lexicon I, so I <laughs> I'm so happy that you brought Rodden.com. Um, do, so doesn't like Rodden.com seem so quaint now compared to? <laughs> kind of, but it almost seems like that was a an aspect of our consciousness that had like been awakened. Oh, one hundred percent. I mean, the the once the spread of being able to see actual like death and like harm to other human beings became like a widespread thing that was like a huge shift in culture like that hadn't existed before you had like little th like clips you had like bud dwyer and things like that yeah but you, you 
than or do you remember when uh live leak was called ogrish yes um, yes i'm yeah, so happy yeah. you brought that up because uh yeah that was a huge one for me and i remember once again like taking mushrooms and looking at that shit and being like kind of traumatized oh. but we used to yeah. also <laughs> for real we used to print out shit from ogrish and make mixtapes oh. like cannibal corpse and deicide obituary mixtapes that were you know had the like, images from that as the cover and That's um so <laughs> yeah i mean it's so 90s but uh yes man ogrish that was like even looking at it from my perspective now like i don't think it gets more hardcore than that yeah i mean i i don't like there's some like there's some like really fucking awful stuff out there but i, I so i think what was like what's been like a really interesting transition because that was like the initial kind of shout from the void yeah um, you know I, I guess that's what ended up making me having knowing about that back in the day made me really is like kind of like what struck my interest in what ended up becoming a megalotropolis where that's you know communities that are around that it's not just these kind of like isolated pages that you like look at with your friends it's like something that becomes interactive with uh you know with like strangers and like how does that kind of culture thrive and function you know you captured that so perfectly and just to dovetail on what you just said what i think is so interesting about that time period that you're trying to capture and what you've written in amygdalatropolis is that you have communities based on isolation and mm -hmm. i think what makes a community is in a dichotomy and like the sparks of those two like opposites that to me is i think a lot of like what internet culture is and a lot of chan culture and you know, it's just this dichotomy of, um, you know, we're like antisocial people being social together with this filter that mediates our thoughts into these edited bursts in a weird way kind of robs a lot of like the heart and soul of what communication is about, you know, because all the right. like edges are taken off. But at the same right. time, it can also just be all edge which I think is right. kind of the community that you've tried to capture, which I think you did a fucking really killer job, man. Like, I mean, Dillatropolis actually, like, gave me the chills, man. Thanks, man. No, that, I, I really appreciate it. That's, I feel like that's, like, the highest compliment I can hear. <laughs> like, you just made me think of, like, the first time I saw someone get hit by a train. It's, like, yeah. it's, like <laughs> it's, it's weird and, like, traumatic in a bizarre way. And, like, a, you know, having that that distance is i don't know it, it it there's something different there and like i you know it's so funny like i'm actually like truth be told i'm like a very squeamish person like i like get bothered pretty easily by like a lot of stuff but yeah no like even those just like little bits and pieces that i've like encountered through like i mean it like leaves an impression like i it's funny like i can't myself like imagine immersing myself like i just feel like it would just like damage like i would just i don't want to see anything that's gonna like make me lose the ability to like be happy again <laughs> you know right like I, that's like the fear it's like okay this is gonna like ruin something <laughs> it's not even like those images or videos themselves that have that power it's the fact that like behind them you have entire like communities and 
types of personalities you know what i mean like you have incels you have utaku you have hikikomori culture you have actual cultures that are funneling into that imagery and i think seeing that and knowing that as an adult is so much more intense and there's a lot of like positive like folks who like you know are also into exploring like more horrible and like exposing like themselves to like horrible things as well too like it's like i don't want to paint with too broad of a broad of a brush it's evasive too because there's it's happening in incredibly like self-mediated spaces it's kind of impossible to get like a grasp on the truth behind like what it is like it's it's very easy to like have an initial response of like looking at some of like a subculture or something and being like oh shit like these everyone here is like a sociopath but like is that just the front and i think oftentimes it is just the front but you're not able to like really check in with like who the people are so it's the uh it's just like being able to confirm any aspect of like truth and reality in like those spaces is like so kind of just out of grasp it just makes it really interesting and fascinating i think something that has happened you know i think since trump's presidency and i think we're all kind of attuned to a big part of him being elected especially younger people or people of our generation is that, you know, he's really tapped in or his, you know, support base is really tapped into this Chan culture. These things that you're talking about that were so evasive, something that was very pervasive and able to infiltrate politics. And, you know, just the fact that you can ask a lay person what a troll is and they know, I think is very mm. telling about how this has kind of um, risen to the top. It's partially be due to like my own like ignorance around like the depth of it, but I I tend to be like I, or at least I try to be like skeptical of like wondering like I, I know that there's like lots of proponents of like Donald Trump like in those spaces. I, I it makes me like wonder how much of a factor they actually make up like because I do still kind of like tend to think of it, like the majority of like. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure. Well, what about um, like um, Milo Yiannopoulos and um... right? No, no, and 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 you're absolutely right. It did it did enter the mainstream in a like in a very real way. And like you're talking about, like the evasiveness, like turning into the pervasive. Yeah, no, it it is kind of was strange watching that unfold because because I had been writing it prior to it kind of becoming known in the mainstream or like when uh this feels like forever ago but the hillary speech that like addressed pepe and, yeah that was uh, that was uh, another ab moment which was, yeah which was bizarre yeah like um yeah i know i mean it's just it is is a wild thing to trip out on it i don't know like i said me coming to your book amygdala Metropolis this year and me being also just uh, simultaneously privy to a lot of this stuff really um made for a heady cocktail that's awesome that's awesome and one thing i noticed um from your social media is that this book was a huge game changer for me and i think it was for you too but were you a big fan of the cypher by kathy koja yeah absolutely i, I fucking love that book so much that was uh 
going back to tone and atmosphere, I feel like that was that was one of the biggest touchstones of like this is a book that's doing it the way that I always want it to be. It's not giving you any answers. It's like incredibly frightening throughout. You it has like such a feel to it. But yeah, huge. I love that book. I'm so happy that you brought that up. Yeah, and I mean to me it was also one of these books where the language did so much of the talking. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I guess we should tell the people, uh, listeners, what it's about. But it's about this couple that have a hole in the in the floor of their apartment that when they put things into, they come out evil. Is that a okay description? Yeah, they they come they come out in a, in a series of glyphs. And were you aware of um, the imprint that put it out? Because it was an imprint called Abyss that was part of Dell Books. And they had also released Poppy Z. Bright, who for me was another game changer. And your book really reminded me a lot of some of her work as well. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm actually looking at both of my copies of (laughs) my copies of both of those right now. They're actually one right on top of the other. Yeah, like I, I wasn't necessarily aware of uh, abyss as like the status of an as an imprint until actually within like the past year because there's i like had read an article about like dell's horror imprint and it was just really interesting but yeah no that was they had put out some really interesting stuff i feel like that was like a it seemed like that was like maybe late 80s early 90s and they were like just striking at something that was really good and like visceral and like you were saying like they're like the the language is there's still that line by line appeal like and you know like that quality on a line by line level and it also makes me think about what's kind of exciting about right now you know in the 90s like we had like this small period where like you know like a handful of books were able to be published that were transgressive or kind of functioned outside the usual bounds of narrative but now even though everybody kind of like laments like the death of the book and that nobody fucking reads and all this (laughs) kind of bullshit we have all of these amazing imprints like the ones that like schism apocalypse party in the castle so in a weird way more of these ideas and more of this kind of text is coming out now than Mm -hmm. did then but now I think even though maybe the audience might be smaller, I think it's slowly growing and like the kind of work that's coming out of it, like the kind of stuff that you're putting out, the kind of work that like Blake Butler's putting out, Matthew Stoko, there's a lot of really amazing, cool shit that I think, even though it might not have like a giant audience right now, I think that in the future there's gonna be like a a new type of understanding and appreciation of it every industry has like changed and for some reason i think that books uh get looked at in the publishing industry it's still looked at from the same like frame it's as if like we were still looking at like the primary music publishing houses as being like atlantic or geffen or something like that well just not having like an imprint of a giant press putting out like four or five interesting books a year you have now like 10 small presses that are putting out amazing books every year that aren't getting out to as big of an audience but when you kind of dig into it you're like holy shit this is stuff that i think will be recognized as great one day very soon and i 
And I, I feel like there's like almost like multiverses of it. Like it's just, you know, there's I think everyone who is like paying attention to what's happening in um, independent lit and everything. Everyone has probably like their 10 presses that they're looking at. And like I think but that might be different from the other 10 presses that another person is looking at and following. I think that that's cool. Like it's again, it's like there's there isn't one big like scene happening or anything like that. I, I hate to use that term, uh, but there's just a bunch of like smaller ones. But I think that that can that doesn't reduce validity. I, I know that that's not what you're saying that is reducing like validity, but. I think in the eyes of uh, people who like, I guess like the folks who are still like judging the validity of a work by it being tied to like one of the big five uh, publishing houses or being tied to these very like superficial and old world ways of, uh, you know, publishing. It's just cool. It's, it's just cool to see these new kind of modes of, you know, sharing work evolve and pop up. You know, the the thing that motivates the book, the thing that puts momentum behind the, the text is tone and atmosphere. We're not mm. talking about like heavily plotted novels because I think that's, I think the book got really stuck in that mode of thinking that if it doesn't have that or if it's not really relatable, then it's really not valid and it's just kind of something experimental. But mm. when you think about the way you interact with text on a day-to-day -day basis, it's very atmospheric. You know what I mean? Like right. you don't read through entire um, narratives to know their outcome and their trajectory. You're able to kind of take in a lot of short bursts of texts. And I mean us in general, like anybody that reads like Twitter or just reads headlines or just reads these bursts of text, like, when you step back from it and you kind of look at or think about what it all means, it has a vibe. And I think it's interesting that um, these presses are capitalizing on the book being an object that expresses that specific feeling, that tone. I, I think I, I think you just completely fucking nailed it right there, like 100%. One way that I've just kind of been not this hasn't been for any conscious reason but just because of you know it's been like the only way that i can engage with media or art at this time is like not just kind of turning off any like critical aspects and just like letting the experience like wash over and i think that that's like like inside the castle like a lot of what they're doing is like those books are like experiences that are very clear about existing within the world and being part of or a part of a wider span of influences and sensory uh, sensory experiences and tactile experiences and intellectual experiences that all come together to create a very unique and personal effect depending on the person who's reading it and like recognizing the role that you know a book can play and what does a book do that other mediums cannot um like what specifically like what makes it an experience as opposed to a plot or a story you know big shout out to john at uh in the castle absolutely putting out some fucking awesome work man 
And uh, speaking of, I think I'll, you know, let's end this on, uh, let's uh, fanboy out on Matthew Stokoe for a second. Yeah. I'm curious, what, uh, what books of Matthew Stokoe have you read? So it's a, a funny thing. Like, I have a hard time, like, keeping my attention on a specific thing. So I, it's very rare that I read more than one or two books by a given author. Very rare but even like the ones that I absolutely love. So I've actually only read Cows by Matthew Stokoe, um, but that was a very formative book when I, uh, my good friend, uh, give a shout out to Owen, introduced that to me when I was uh, probably uh, 19 or 20. Oh, wow. And, and that was, I, I've had like a progression of different books throughout my life that have uh, sort of have re like ignited the thoughts like, oh, you can really just do anything in a book, like, and like, you know, and it's fine. And Cows like very much was like, oh shit, okay, you can like really just write whatever you want. Okay, that's that's awesome. That's terrific. And and the fact that was very good. That was so bleak, so harrowing but was like a high quality book that was like a huge inf that was something i thought about a lot while doing amygdala Metropolis, at least that makes sense man that's super cool and I, I had the same thing with uh cows uh i was i think i think i was like 23 or 24 when i discovered it and it was definitely one of those moments where i was like oh i thought the line was at uh william burroughs but actually right, right. the line is over here and yep. what Matthew does. That's I think so interesting. And I would maybe even venture out to say like, he's one of the few people or maybe only person that does this is that he writes a very beautifully plotted Hollywood style narrative, you know, like it's mm. a love story. It's a page turner. It has all these mm. kind of aspects to it that, you know, I think, um, on a like you know on a basic level like everybody's looking for these elements in a book you know like i wish right. there were like more page turners like cows that i could just you know lose myself into the plot which i feel like that kind of medium for me at least is really relegated to film but yeah. uh his work is really incredible if you haven't read um the rest of his stuff especially high life I think uh, yeah. I've got just the quarantine treat for you. <laughs> oh, awesome. Excellent. Yeah, no, I, I have to check that out because I've heard that's very different. That's still like very good. But it, it's been like I remember my my buddy um, was saying that uh, about how it was like a very uh, it's very similar to uh, Ian, uh, Ian Banks progression from doing the, the Wasp Factory mm. then to doing things that like are decidedly not necessarily as harrowing as the wasp factory i would say it's more like and i'm not sure if this if you've seen these movies but to me it's more like um the tenant to chinatown by polanski okay i ha i haven't I, i've seen uh chinatown i haven't seen the tenant you might dig the tenant like the tenant is very much kind of in this you know, this vibe that we're talking about, you know, about a guy that finds like teeth hidden in his walls. And I'm not totally remembering the plot right now, but it's very wild. And <laughs> you, Chinatown you sold me on teeth hidden in the walls. So there you yeah, go. good, good. Yeah. Um, you'll love the you tenant. The tenant awesome. is amazing. But I think that progression really, um, to me, fits uh, Matthew Stoko's work. And just how great high life is don't let its hollywood appeal you know fool you it's like really that fucking good 
That's cool. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check that out soon. All right, man. Well, Perfect. this was so fucking fun, man. I'm glad we finally yeah. got to talk. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. I really, it's huge. I really appreciate it. And yeah, hope you stay safe, man.